Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. On today's show, we have another episode of the Soup Series, which is our Hot Shot Superintendent Series, where we talk to Hot Shot Superintendents from around the nation. Today, we talk to Fred Thompson, who is the longstanding Hot Shot Superintendent of the Helena Hot Shots. If you're unaware, this is located in Region 1, which is your Northern Rockies region, and located in Helena, Montana. We get into all sorts of subjects today, whether it's just what it means to be a hotshot, what is specific and different about the Helena hotshots or not, and some of the things they do day to day that may stand out in some folks' eyes as, you know, a very positive thing that the crew does. We also get into his endurance athletics. Fred runs 100 miles, 50 Ks, and uh, is known in the industry as Fast Fred for his time he spends running long, long distances. We also talk about mental health, the future of fire, how his crew dealt with tragedy when tragedy struck just a few years ago, technology and wildfire, and of course, just all sorts of other things. I'd like to thank Fred for taking the time out of his day to speak with me, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, the Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. Hey, Tim. Hey, Fred. How you doing? Good. How you got me? I got you real clear. Am I coming through all right? Yep, you are. I'm, uh, I got my uh, earbuds in, so okay, cool. That, that helps with the sound. No, it sounds great, man. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, appreciate you having me. For sure. Hey, to start off, if I did my math correct, is this year 16 that you are the superintendent of Helena Hotshots? I think it's going to be 17. Yeah, 16, 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. This would be, this would be the 17th season. Okay. My 17th season, yeah. Any, th- any thoughts on that? How does that feel? Obviously, it's been, it's been long enough to where you got to count now. And so. Yeah, right. I have to take my shoes off to figure <laughs> out how long it is. Uh, good. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's been a great experience for sure. You know, being here in Helena and, uh, you know, having some longevity in the program and the leadership is, is good. Um, you know, I, I'm definitely in the twilight of my hotshot career. Um, but, uh, you know, as I look back on it, it's been, it's been good. Yeah. Has all your time on shot crews been with Helena? No, uh, no, I started in 1997 on the St. Joe hotshot crew, which is, uh, in, was at the time was in Clarkia on the Idaho panhandle okay. down South out in the middle of nowhere. And then, uh, the next year we moved up to Coeur d'Alene where they're currently out of, and, uh, sometime after I left, they changed the name to Idaho panhandle. And then I, uh, I helped start Lewis and Clark hotshots as one of the captains there for a year on a detail. And then I spent, uh, five years on Pleasant Valley Hotshots, which is now Mesa. Okay. Um, so, yeah, including four of those years running the crew. And then what year did you come back to Helena? 2007. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Helena Hotshots themselves, you guys just recently had a 50-year anniversary just a couple years back? Yep. A couple years ago, we celebrated 50 years. Crew started in 71 and uh, kind of, you know, started in a... Actually, a lot of the Northern Rockies crews, or a couple of them anyway, came out of uh, Slate Creek, Idaho, on the Clear Ness. Uh, you know, they moved the, the Flathead Hotshots were there for a while, not really as a hotshot crew, but as an IR crew or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a local crew. And then they moved up to Hungry Horse. And then uh, the, you know, Helena, the, the crew that became Helena was, uh, you know, rebuilt up there and then moved uh, to Helena in 71. And, uh, we did uh, Helena kind of the, the myth of the legend uh, around here of our inception was that we were a camp crew and we were doing camp work, helping out. And uh, they needed some firefighters to go out and fight some fire on the ground. And they asked the, those folks to do that. And they went out and did it and went, wow, you guys are pretty good at that. You guys ought to you know, do this more often. And that's kind of the legend has it. That's how we got our start. So humble beginnings. Sure. But it, it seems like it progressed pretty quickly. I, I was also reading that you guys in the, in the beginning, um, the crew, you kind of was made up of some locals, some Vietnam veterans, which I was not shocked to see, but you don't read that very mm-hmm. often. And even with uh, some of the native American population, they, they were also on the crew. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. The, the Helena, uh, Helena Indian Alliance was, uh, fairly strong in those days and uh they had you know quite a bit of an initiative to for a long time really probably up into the mid 90s you know there was quite a bit of uh inner um intermingling there recruiting that came out of those programs and uh you know it doesn't surprise me that you know veterans we have a pretty to this day we have a pretty uh you know veteran initiative um kind of crew you know we really support veterans and try to employ as many of them as we can certainly give them opportunities if they're available yeah very nice and in today's in today's world when you describe the helena hotshots how would you do that and are there some quirky things that you you can say that your crew has that others don't or or you know where I'm going with this? Like, how would you describe your crew, the culture, and uh, and and how the crew is is structured and run? Sure. You know, I think uh, our humble beginnings. You know, we try to stay routed, uh, grounded in that. You know, uh, humility is something that uh, that we preach. Uh, you know, work ethic, um, self motivated. Uh, sort of folks you know we we try to go out and do our work and if people are impressed that's great but we'll know in our heart that we you know we did the best job we can and we're never above doing any task um and you know if given a task we'll try to figure out the most effective and efficient way to get it done so you know i think humility and hard work is uh something that we hold as um you know values you know kind of hot shot work is uh oftentimes uh, a good forum for teaching and developing and um, reinforcing uh, values of work ethic and teamwork and humility and preparedness and uh, you know those kind of things that will help people be successful in whatever adventures they take on. So I, you know I would say that that's something that's a part of our culture. And then you know the other thing I think that sets us apart maybe uh, is that you know we're we're a mindful crew. We do a mindful meditation. Um, Dr. Ted Putman, who was uh, the kind of the godfather of human factors, uh, came to this crew before me and uh, approached the superintendent then 
uh, about you know mindfulness, and uh, they took it on and made it a part of their culture. And that was probably mid '90s, and then uh, kind of it fell by the wayside. Um, it did, you know, for a few years, and then when I came to the crew, my assistant at the time said, "Hey, we used to do this thing; it really was cool." And I said, "Well, I don't know anything about it, so let's get Ted back in here to teach us about it." And he, yeah. he taught us some some breathing exercises and some things like that. And, you know, so we do that as a part of our morning briefing. You know, we we do a you know four seven eight breathing exercises a group. Uh, some you know everybody does their own thing probably, you know, I, I don't really go around and enforce the fact that, that they're, you know, doing a breathing exercise yeah. or just being quiet and getting centered in what they're doing or, uh, you know, what they're doing. But one thing I do know is that, you know, in 2007, before we started that, we led the forest in reportable accidents, which is sort of to be expected because we have the highest exposure rate. But uh, in the, the following year, the first year that we did the started you know, redoing the mindfulness, we had zero reportable accidents. So it does have a, a fairly real effect on our safety and well-being. You know, it just helps people get focused in on the day and take the information of the briefing, you know, the safety, the strategies, the tactics, all that stuff, um, you know, kind of gives people to put their cell phones away and, you know, stop thinking about their other things going on in their life and be focused on, you know, the hazardous environment that they're about to engage in. I think that's great. And, and that was reintroduced, you said, uh, shortly after you came back or, or, you yeah, took I think we, through? I think we brought it back in 2008 was the first year that, that we started back up with it. It, it probably had a hiatus from, well, you know, 2000, 2001 to, to then, you know, so had a five or six year hiatus, uh, just with, you know, different leaders and superintendents in place that, yeah. uh, you know, carried it on, I guess. But, you know, I, I think that because it's been a lot large part of our culture for a long time, it's it's easier for us to do. You know, people are accepting it because that's just way it's just part of the culture versus yeah, hey, trying is, to this is what the crew inter- is. Right. They, rather than introduce it, you know, to to a new crew, somebody that doesn't sure. know what that what it is. So And the feedback from the crew members, do you get any of that on when or like if new folks come in or if someone has been there for a year or two, do you get really good positive feedback from just doing that in the morning time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, certain people obviously are going to have be b- more bought into it than others. I mean, I just ask that everybody respect the time. And, you know, if they choose to just, uh, you know, stand there and be quiet, then that's that's their choice. If they want to pray or meditate or do whatever, you know, I'm not really, like I said, I'm not policing that. I just, we just provide that opportunity to kind of take a few deep breaths and, you know, clear out our head and get ready for Action. So, yeah, generally, it's. I, I mean, I haven't ever had anybody say anything negative against it. So, you know, I guess I take that as a good sign. Yeah, I think that would be. It'd be kind of hard to come out negative against something like that. Um, right. The other thing that um, I know that you folks do is we all know their safety officers are on the line. We have people who who are appointed to divisions for this sort of. You know, that's their task to ensure this and and express to everybody. You know not only how to be safe, but just again, to be mindful about what's going on with hazards around you, but you guys kind of have a rotating crew safety. Can you kind of talk about that? Yeah. We appoint everybody on a weekly basis to, uh, you know, kind of keep an eye on things, you know, obviously myself and my assistant leadership can't be everywhere all the time. So sort of some self-policing opportunities for folks to 
you know, just make sure that people are, you know, wearing their gloves when they're sharpening their tools and got their eye protection on and their sleeves rolled down and, you know, just kind of their lights on the chalks down, you know, it's, you know, people do that. And we, um, and then we rotate that every, uh, you know, every week, you know, every Friday we have a meeting, a safety meeting where we, you know, go over the fines and the, you know, and then people have an opportunity to take them to court if they think that they were properly, you know, uh, fined, if you will, which sure. is always one, once in a while is always a fun skit. It's never really about the facts as much as the case, you know, so it's, it's just kind of a crew morale thing a little bit. And, you know, it also acts as, you know, to keep the, you know, safety things, tradition things and stupidity things, you know, just sort of, um, you know, tidied up a little bit. It's not, uh, not intended to, isolate or you know i'm real specific about it you know there's no no targeting of anybody or anything like that you know yeah no one's running around with a magnifying glass pointing fingers right that's right yeah and we're not trying to get you know it's not like i'm gonna get john you know i'm gonna really get him because he got me last time it's you know it's just kind of a way to you know keep track of that stuff and make sure folks are you know got their gloves on and their eye protection on and air protection and all that stuff yeah and i think uh uh peer-to-peer kind of accountability is nice as well, you know, because, okay, yeah, safety's walking down the line, you know, do what you got to do to make sure we look like we're dialed in, you know, if, if, if we're not, but on a peer to peer level, especially within the crew, I think that's good for accountability and, and, uh, the rotating aspect just kind of keeps everything fresh in an individual's yeah. mind if they're in charge of that. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, hot shots in general, you know, we set the example on the fire ground. There's a lot of young up and coming firefighters and other resources that are looking at the hotshots to set an example. And so, you know, it's important for us to recognize that, you know, we're under a little bit of a microscope on the fire ground and, you know, set a positive example, you know, with our PPE and our, you know, policies and procedures and the way that we conduct ourselves, not only from a, you know, safety point of view, but an approachability and a friendliness kind of attitude, you know, so, you know, it's just one more of those things that kind of helps us, you know, set the example for folks. Yeah, hundred percent. You were talking about preparation. And so let's dive into that. You know, I've talked about this before and I think it's pretty well known. There's, there's CrossFit crews, there's hiking crews, there's running crews. You can argue that everybody's a hiking crew, but, uh, you know, when it comes to like what crews do for training, am I, well, I got two questions. One, what would your suggestion be for people who want to be hotshots and are looking for examples or advice on training? And would you categorize Helena in any of those uh, categories that I listed? Sure. You know, we kind of tell people that, uh, you know, look at the BLM fitness standards as a, as a guide, you know, it's a fairly, um, you know, a good guy to, you know, set some goals for, you know, push-ups, pull-ups and core exercises, uh, as well as, you know, ability to, to run. Um, you know, we, we, so we kind of, when people are asking about how they should train, we, you know, we steer them to that to sort of give them a, a guideline for it. You know, we also suggest that, you know, they look at it like, a. um, you know, a half marathon training program, not to say that we'll run a half marathon, but, you know, just kind of gives you enough of an idea about, you know, being able to cover some ground. And, you know, it's really about overall work fitness as much as anything. I mean, obviously the pack test is a part of it. Uh, you know, you got to be able to do that, but, you know, we, we do quite a bit of hiking and, and sort of work related, 
fitness mm-hmm. more than anything. I mean, yeah, we'll go out and sort of assess their fitness, uh, you know, for convenience on a run, we'll run, you know, six miles and, you know, kind of to see where people are at. And a lot of it for me. And when I tell those guys, is it's really not about how fast you go. It's not a race. It's, it's really about the effort that you make and the demonstrating of your, you know, your off season preparation, uh, with the running, uh, you know, what we do is we hike and we work. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of what we focus our energy on, you know, I think because I like to run, people have this impression that Helen is a running crew and, and in reality, that's not really the case necessarily. There are other crews that are a much more run specific because of, you know, where they're located. You know, we're fortunate mm-hmm. enough to have the South Hills of Helena here. We can hike around all over there uh, and uh, get our exercise. And and the reality of it anymore is, is that we don't have time to get people into, you know, top physical condition. Really what we're looking to do is assess their fitness and then work on any areas where they might be short, you know, as a whole, as a team. Um, you know, if we're, if we've got some folks that are coming from low elevation and they need some acclim- acclimation time, then, you know, we'll, we'll work together to help those people get up to, you know, acclimated to the elevation here in Helena. And, you know, uh, and then we go to work, you know, and really the first week of critical training is sort of an assessment of physical fitness training and look to sort of, you know, improve on anywhere where we might be weak. Uh, and then uh, the f- second week we're out in the field doing fuels work is, you know, training for the, uh, for the season, you know, we're digging line around units and sawing trees down and doing the things that we do. And, you know, my compass never really works very well in the spring. Uh, so, you know, we might be pull up to a fuels unit and I might end up over Hill and Dale, you know, trying to find, find the unit that we park next to, but, uh, yeah. you know, but that's just to get people prepared for, you know, what we do. And, you know, we kind of, you know, we looked at a lot of the studies of people hiking in and we don't, we don't really um, prescribed to the how hard can we walk into a fire or a fuels you know we kind of go at a slow steady constant pace uh you know we don't want to get people's core temperature up so far that they can't recover from that and yeah. you know we're, we're really there to do work and so we don't want to get to you know the top of a hill where the work is and be totally gassed so we try to you know when we're going to a work site you know we just go at a, a constant steady pace that uh you know is fairly feels very slow in the front but if you're the guy off the back you know trying to deal with the whiplash of people stepping over logs and stuff this yeah. can be a little bit of a hustle but you know so I, I i don't know that i would categorize this any one area i think we kind of try to do a good balance of you know running hiking and core calisthenics you know uh focus that's typically how our first week is set up is a uh a run day you know, usually the 10K is kind of what we'll start out with just to kind of make an assessment. And the second day will be a calisthenics day, uh, you know, focusing on, you know, work-related sort of stuff, flipping tires, pulling hoses and, you know, flipping uh, sandbags around and, you know, just kind of stuff that you would might simulate real work. And then, and then we'll do a short trail run, you know, with some vert, you know, just to simulate, you know, kind of hiking and stuff like that. Usually it's about four miles with some vert in it. And then uh, on another calisthenics day on Thursday, and then we'll do, uh, you know, uh, a hiking day on Fridays and, you know, we'll try to try not to crush anybody. You know, our goal is success. We have a culture of success here. We hire people. We go through a fairly extensive, um, you know, vetting uh, process before we make selections, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of people that we know are going to be successful. And then when they get here, we, we do everything we can to make them successful and not, you know, give them, you know, 
not, we're not egomaniacs where we're trying to prove how many pull-ups somebody can do or something like that. You know, we're just trying to improve our overall fitness. And can you speak on, uh, I guess, mental fitness? And and I'm not going to dive into the mental health aspects of things yet, but just the mental fitness of work, you know, of that work grind. Now, I've I've been up the power line, probably not as much as you have, but I know it's steep. And about halfway up, you can start thinking to yourself, oh, man, you know, this is this is steep. And especially if you got weight on your back. Can you can you touch on I guess what your vetting process is pre-hiring and how do you ensure and build that mental fitness in your workforce? Sure, I guess I'll answer the first question first. Uh, you know, pre pre-hiring, you know, we we reference this. You know, people want to know what it takes to get hired, and I say, well, good quality references. You know, we want to call people's references and have them say, yeah, we're really going to miss this person. He or she is a uh, real you know, a valuable member of our team, uh, you know, physically fit, got lots of initiative, you know, intelligent, got leadership potential, you know, we're hiring the, you know, the future leaders of our agency. And so, you know, those are some of the questions that we ask references. Uh, we do a lot of, uh, interviews with folks, whether it's, uh, in person on the phone or teams, you know, or, or, uh, I don't know, I message, what is it? Uh, the, apple you know or however we just you know find some way to talk to them about what their what their goals and expectations are and where they're at uh we do a lot of once we've made selections you know we do a lot of follow-up calls just to see how they're doing how's their training coming along are they you know making progress or they get an opportunity and we you know we always just suggest that people do things that they enjoy for physical activity you know if they like uh, skiing you know go skinning go skin up a mountain and and ski down and that's a great way to get trained for the realities of what we're into you know if they enjoy running go running if they like mountain biking go mountain biking if they like cross-country skiing go do that you know mm-hmm. and, and uh you know if they're a gym into the gym go to the gym you know whatever they enjoy because you you know if you're trying to do do something you don't enjoy you're less likely to get out of bed and go do it so yeah. you know that's kind of our suggestion with that so you know good reference checks you know uh and then um so highly recommended candidates and then, uh, you know, follow ups with them just to progress checks, just to see how they're doing, you know, if they need anything, if they need any suggestions, anything like that, you know, trying to, so that when they get here, they're as prepared as they can possibly be, uh, for the, the work that we're going to do. And then, you know, the mental toughness thing is, you know, it's a grinder, like you said, you know, it's long days and you never really know when that day might end, you know, you might be, you know, grinding through a day doing something and then the fire, the dynamic fire environment changes and then you're over somewhere else doing something else. So, you know, we just try and try. That's kind of one of the reasons why my compass doesn't work because you just never know when, yeah. the, you know, when you're going to stop hiking and get where you're going to go. You know, it's not that we. Yeah, we might not actually inf- be stopping. Right. You know, it's not that we hold information from people. We give everybody all the information that we have, but things change as we go. You know, we start out one day digging a line from point A to point B. And by the end of the day, we're burning, you know, uh, from point Z to point X, you know, so yeah, things change quick for sure. And, you know, so we talk a lot about, you know, self-care, you know, fueling rest when you can, you know, when there's an opportunity, you know, to take a break, take a break, you know, we work at a appropriate pace that we can hold all day. And if we're doing something that's doesn't require us to be running at full throttle, you know, we kind of encourage people to idle back and slow and steady and, you know, get, get the work done, you know, slow, constant grind, 
is a good way to do it because you never know when they get a spot fire and you got to sprint to catch it or, you know, something like that. Are you going to end up going late into the night or changing from day shift to night shift or, you know, whatever it is. So just being prepared mentally for, you know, you, the, the day's not over until you're laying down in your sleeping bag. Yep. So and that might not be it either. <laughs> well, exactly. There's been plenty right. of times where you're in your sleeping bag and all of a sudden headlights hit you and they say, yep. Hey, we need, we need you now. And yep. you got to get up and go at that point in time. That That's for sure. And so, you know, that's why we encourage people to eat when they can and make sure they're drinking their water and, you know, being prepared for that, you know, uh, and having all their gear, you know, tight so they can get up and move, uh, relatively quickly and respond if needed. Um, you know, cause there's no harm in being ready and not needing it. Yeah. hundred percent on, right. on a more personal note, you are a runner, right? People, people are at least in your region around the area in the hotshot world know you as fast Fred. And oh, I guess so. Yeah, that's what people say, man. <laughs> and right. so you are what I would consider an endurance athlete. You have a hundred K coming up. I know you enjoy right. running. Um, how did you get into that? Because I consider myself a pretty physically fit and healthy person, but it would have taken me some time to, you know, I'm not the type of person to roll out of bed and just be like, I'm going to run a hundred K like a half marathon. Sure. I'll go. Yeah. I'll roll out of bed and be like, you know what? I'm going to run 13 miles today. But how did you grow into this sport? Sure. Yeah, I didn't roll out of bed either and go run 100K, that's for sure. Yeah. I've, I've spent a lot of years training for it. Um, and, you know, some some deliberately and some not. Uh, you know, I guess is, uh, you know, I played co- collegiate football. And so okay. when the coach would make us make us run a lap around the track, I always thought that was a long ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I also grew up fairly in a remote location uh, off the grid. And so I, if I wanted to have a friend, I had to ride my bike a long ways or walk through the woods a long ways. So, you know, I've always just kind of traveled, uh, self-propelled travel a little bit, but I guess I quit playing college football and I sort of was like, well, what do I do now? And, you know, I wanted to be a hot shot. I wanted to be a good hot shot. And so, you know, I knew, I knew I needed to be physically fit. So I just, you know, would go for a run to clear my mind and I would run until I got tired and then I would turn around and run back. And, you know, that started out with three miles and went to five and then, you know, on and on and on. And, uh, really didn't get into racing or running, you know, competitively, if you will say, uh, until probably 2009, I hired, a a guy who was said, I'm moving to Helena and bring my wife. And there's this, uh, this, uh, 30 K race going on in town. I'm going to run that. And I was like, wow, that sounds kind of like a long ways, you know, and I started looking into it and going, well, that's not really all that far. You know, 18 miles isn't that far. What people do, you know, people run yeah. 200, 200 miles at a time. And, uh, so, you know, I did that a couple of times and it really hurt a lot. Uh, <laughs> probably gave myself a mild case of rhabdo yeah. and uh, kind of went, wow, that was hard. And then a couple of days later, I was like, yeah, that was kind of, kind of cool. I did that, you know, and then I ran it again the next year and the next year got every year, got easier and less time to recover and kind of went, well, I wonder if I could run, you know, 30 miles, like do a 50 K. So I did that. I was like, oh yeah, you know, and it just kind of progressed. And then I found out about uh, kind of, as I was researching how to fuel and train for those kind of races, I found out about a race called the Western States 100. And I set that up as a goal, something that I wanted to accomplish in my life, you know, to see if I could, uh, you know, I mean, over, if my mind was strong enough to overcome my body, 
uh, you know, my body's desire to say stop and my mind's uh, willingness to say accomplish this goal. And so I set that goal and it's fairly intensive to get into that race as far as, you know, qualifying races and such and such. So, you know, just kind of started hundred miler and qualified, didn't get drawn, ran another hundred miler, qualified, didn't get drawn, you know, finally got drawn and got an opportunity to run that race, which was a great life experience. And, and then took a couple years off and I'm just kind of now falling back in love with running, you know, I just got into running because I liked running through the woods, you know, and getting, mm-hmm. checking things out and, you know, being outside and, you know, in the build up to Western States, you know, it started to become more of, I got to get up and go run, you know, not more I get to, you know, so I've been trying to get back to, I get to go for a run today and I get to, I get to go out and be in the outdoors and take on the challenges of the topography and, you know, see if I could push my, body past its limits or to its limits and so it's just kind of how i got got into it and you know it's for me it's a more of a mental challenge you know being you know mentally capable of training your body to you know um, accomplish a goal and it's really rewarding when you set a goal like that it seems you know crazy to some people and yeah. and you accomplish accomplishment whether you you know have a really good race or everything comes apart you know it's that happens all the time and it's part of life and um you know you just keep moving forward and, and uh try to get to the finish line and that's kind so. of part of hotshot culture right like one of my favorite things oh. and and a lot of folks that that i know in the industry you ask them like why or like what's the good feeling like what is the good feeling you get when you do this job and for me it was always just accomplishing massive operations, whether it's cutting line or, you know, whatever it is, a a burnout no one thought you could do. And then at the end of the day, turning around and seeing the ground you covered, how much actual, you know, labor and output that was put into it. And, and there is that gratification that comes after all of that, that hard work. Absolutely. And, and it's amazing how much a team can accomplish with a common goal. Uh, you know, waking up, waking up in the morning and going, what are we going to get done today? Where's the fire at? And laying down at night going, man, we got a lot done today or we made some, we made a difference. You know, it's always really rewarding uh, those nights when you lay down and you made a difference in somebody's life. You know, somebody's home is threatened by a wildfire and, you know, you show up on their very worst day. I mean, we could all imagine, you know, our homes being threatened, everything that we work for and have. And, you know, and someone shows up and is uh, respectful and uh, conscientious of, of, of that. And, you know, you make a difference and you help uh, preserve that, those values for those folks. You know, that's really rewarding. And, you know, and then that sense of team, team is, uh, you know, that comes from that group um, effort is, you know, it's that's definitely something that draws people to this business and has kept me here for all these years, for sure. Yeah. And it keeps you in contact with folks. Like there's, there's people that I was on the crew with, you know, 12 years ago and we still chat, like we still text and like, it's, it's amazing that that the bond that happens through all that. I got a quick question when you're training for this stuff, do you have like a really strict diet? Like what do you follow diet wise? You know, I, I pretty much eat what I always eat. You know, I, I like lean proteins and uh, green leafy vegetables and, you know, uh, non-starchy carbohydrates. Uh, you know, I don't really do anything like that in the eating thing to any kind of an extreme. Um, you know, I don't really have any dietary sensitivities. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I, I just try to stay away from refined sugars and, you know, uh 
bad fats, I guess, you know, I, I like, uh, you know, good quality fats and, uh, good carbohydrates and proteins to recover. So I don't have a real strict diet per se. Um, I just, it's just kind of what I, how I normally eat is, you know, fairly lean and try to eat as healthy as you can stay away from the processed foods as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, I don't want to be, I want to enjoy, if I want to enjoy something, you know, if I want to have a hot dog, I'll have a hot dog. Yeah, you're you know, not going to torture yourself. Right. I'm not going to eat hot dogs every day, but you know, I, just for example, you know, but, I, uh, so no, I don't really have a super strict diet. I certainly, you know, race day is a different, you know, animal and the carbohydrates, the glucose and sucrose mixtures and, you know, getting the right amount of hydration and calories in you during, during an event like that before and during an event like that. But, you know, when you're, when you're training that much and running that much, you know, you can eat about any of why your body just consumes it. Yeah. Just um, a furnace. Yeah, totally. <laughs> the motor's running hot right now. That's for sure. So kind of a good segue. Some folks do know, some don't. Um, you guys, I, I, this is the part I don't know. And maybe you could clarify for me. Did you invite David Goggins on the crew? Did he approach you to to join the crew and experience, you know, what being a hotshot is like that, and the endurance and the, and the mental strength that it takes to be that? And what was that experience like? With you being an endurance athlete, was I'm sure there was a lot of friendly competition going on. What was that uh, experience like? Sure. Uh, so... David came to us through a program in the Northern Rockies called Lead Forward, which is a veteran recruiting effort uh, that Dan Cottrell has put together, and we've been getting involved with as well. And support, at least as a support role, but uh, one of my assistants is starting to be more actively involved in that. Uh, you know, it's a program where veterans can, you know, the region hires a certain amount of veterans and places them out on crews uh, and different different resources, not just hotshot crews. But uh, David had a goal of being a smoke jumper. Uh, he approached Dan about being a smoke jumper. You know, he's got a long list of accomplishments that he's done, you know, Navy SEALs and Rangers and, you know, all these other, uh, you know, high-level military stuff that he's done. And so, you know, he, he kind of felt like this was a good segue for him to go be a smoke jumper and, mm -hmm. you know, experience that. And, uh, and so, you know, not having really any fire experience, Dan approached me about, uh, David coming and be on the crew for a summer. And I said, well, sure. You bet, you know, I, I'll support the program and whatever the goals are of the program. You know, I'm certainly a, uh, a huge supporter of uh, veteran hiring efforts. And uh, so David came on the crew, you know, and of course I, I Googled him and looked at his uh, podcast and stuff and was kind of like, Oh boy, you know, this guy could be kind of, you know, it comes off a little egotistical, you know, and yeah, you kind of go, well, dude, yeah. you know, yeah, you kind of go, well, you know, he's getting paid to talk about himself. So, you know, it's pretty hard to talk about yourself and maybe, maybe not come off the wrong way. Yeah. And, uh, David showed up here for critical training and he was a super humble, uh, easygoing guy. Uh, he, you know, was happy to sweep the floors at the end of the day and give the guys advice about, you know, investments and, you know, kind of taking care of their future. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, he's enthusiastic about it. Um, you know, I kind of always tell people like on a weekend between criticals to go do something good for yourself. You know, if you've got kids, you know, and what's good for you is to go be with your kids and read them a book then to go do that. You know, or if you like to mountain bike, go mountain bike or do whatever, you know, do something that's, you know, that you enjoy, that is good for you. That's going to help you be better. And so that David carried a, 
giant bunch of giant heavy rocks at the top of Mount Helena. Ran for four hours and then did a sub one hour tire mile tire flip for his day off. You know, that's the kind of guy that Dave David is. You know, but uh, but David went with us, uh, did through critical training, and then went out to uh, prescribed fire uh, out um, out east up on the high line. There, a pretty large scale landscape burn that we did. Had a really good time. Got familiar with some of the equipment that we use, and then you know he was real busy with his book tour and all those things. And so he, he yeah. went off to, to do that and then uh, joined us for a fire in Colorado for about seven or eight days. Uh, you know, pretty good firefight. He got a taste of, and, um, and then he left, he left and didn't have, didn't have time to get back with us again, but you know, the experience with David was good. I, I really like David, uh, you know, I respect him a bunch as a, you know, somebody who's kind of made the choice, to uh you know get off the couch and go accomplish set some goals and accomplish them um you know probably to an extreme that not not all of us need to do but it definitely sets a an example that you know anything's possible you can go from 300 pounds sitting on a couch you know to eating pizza and milkshakes to you know a navy seal and you know all these things that he's accomplished so you know certainly certainly got some good mental toughness and you know i I wish that he could have spent more time with us and experienced the grind because you know, it's kind of easy to be a hot shot in June, but it's a whole different story in September. Yeah, hundred percent. And he just didn't have time, or nor did it make sense economically for him to do that. So, well, yeah, he's but, running uh, multiple businesses, and and his schedules, yeah. I'm sure, is packed. And like, if so, a lot of people who follow me know, like. I, I do the podcast, I write articles, but I also try to like make funny memes for the end of shift. So when people are in the back of the buggy and chilling out for the day, they have something to laugh at. That's sure. really, that's really my only interaction I had with David Goggins. He reached out to me because last summer I made one and, uh, it, it basically just said, uh, if you think being a hotshot's hard, just remember David Goggins didn't make a full season. And uh, he, <laughs> he reached out to me. He like, he did, he hit me up and he's like, yo man, this is what's going on. I was writing a book and I was like, dude, I totally understand. I was, I'm making a joke and I'm trying to make hot shots feel good. Like <laughs> it's just a joke, man. It's just a joke, but totally get it. Busy guy. And, uh, he's doing his, he's doing his thing, but it's cool that yeah, you got a taste of, of what the hot shot world is. Yeah. He, he's a, I, I really like, of course, him and I, him and I had, you know, running and endurance sports in common. And, uh, you know, we had some great conversations and we went for some runs together and, you know, had some good laughs. I mean, I, I remember uh, we ran the 10K and I I had just run the Zion 100 miler about 10 days before that. And I was kind of like, okay, we'll see how my legs do with this turning over fast. And yeah. I ran it and I'm running out there ahead of the guys. And, you know, here comes David pulling up next to me. I'm like, all right, here we go. He's going to blow my doors off, you know, and I keep running. And we get, oh, we get about five miles into it. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, let's see. I'm going to, I'm going to push it a little bit. I pull away from him and finish. He's like, Oh, great job, man. You know, and you know, I'm like, Oh yeah. I didn't know if I could get my legs to do that. So close to a race. He's like, yeah, before I got on the plane on Saturday, I ran 50 miles and then I ran a hundred K on Sunday and then got on the plane and flew here. It's like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you know, an incredible athlete, uh, super humble guy. I mean, in reality, in real, in real life, you know, he'll tell you he's an introvert and, uh, you know, he really is just kind of a, a pretty he's a pretty good guy i mean you know again you got to remember that he gets paid to talk about himself and you know he's a motivating speaker yeah, and all that stuff. so yeah right you know so it kind of you know certain people will take him in a maybe take him wrong that don't know him you know real well could 
I can see how they could take him wrong, but I think he's value added. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Sure. So, yeah. kind of rerouting back to fire here. This is uh, something I like talking about when it comes to region to region. And sure. I spent a lot of time in region one fighting fire. I spent a lot of time in region four fighting fire, um, kicked around in California for a while. And what would you say is unique about fighting fire in region one? And what do you, what would you say people should know? Like if you're coming from region three or region eight or even region five or six, if you're getting called into region one and you folks usually have a later fire season, usually when there's a resource drain in the country already. So what would you say people should know or expect if they're coming to region one to fight fire? Sure. I, I guess, uh, you know, I'll speak mostly to being on a national shared resource in region one. And I'll talk about being on a, if people are looking to come to region one, to be on a hotshot crew, uh, you know, number one, we have really good support in the Northern Rockies. There's uh, six forest service crews, and one BIA crew here and our Northern Rockies, uh, you know, regional office and the coordination center and our local managers, they really support the crews, uh, really well. I mean, they you know, they do everything they can to help us hire the people we need to get hired, you know, support us financially with the funding and the supplies that we need and utilize us appropriately. So, you know, we're really fortunate in the Northern Rockies and that's probably not unique to, to region one, but, you know, it's been my experience that, you know, the support here is really good from the management, if you will. So, and which is really important to, you know, good crews being good crews, you know, they're not going to do it without, Good local support and regional support so that's something that happens you know I, when i talk to crews from the southwest and other places they oh you know you guys don't get out that much and the truth about it is is we're we're as busy as anybody and probably more so because of just like you said you know we start late so we go you know uh, help the other geographic areas uh, you know usually two or three assignments you know southwest great base in alaska and then and then we get busy in the northern rockies and we're the last ones to the resource table so you know we, we get spread out uh thinner you know we get more opportunities to sort of be in the hot seat if you will we don't have to compete for you know with other crews to get the you know good assignments or whatever and give people the good experiences that they want mm -hmm. uh here so you know so we're and then you know in the fall we usually go back out area because our geographic area really supports you know, the national uh, effort as well. Uh, so and that includes sharing resources. So, you know, that's the, that's kind of, you know, being a hot shot in the Northern Rockies, uh, you know, fight far in the Northern Rockies, you know, we have a, you know, a significant problem with the trees. Um, you know, I think a lot of resources come here and are sort of, you know, uh, amazed at uh, the condition, some of the areas of our forests are in pretty poor condition. Are you um, talking like beetle kill, things like that? Yeah, the, you know, the beetle kill is kind of the big thing, you know, here on the Helena, we have quite a bit of it. And so, you know, people who aren't used to working in that environment and maybe don't have the uh, familiarity with the mitigating processes to, you know, that it takes to, you know, go in and, uh, you know, mitigate the hazards before you operate, you know, are a little, can be a little taken aback by it. You know, we go to the Southwest and people are like, oh, this is a really snaggy fire. And we go, where? Yeah, where are oh, they? There's, there, there, yeah. there's one, you yeah. know, and, hey, you know, people come here and go, you know, we go watch out for the green trees because those will sneak up over yeah. on you too. And they go, where? I don't see any. But, uh, you know, so it, it's fairly, um, 
fun and dynamic firefighting. It's a very diverse region. You know, we go over on the west side and deal with mixed conifer, big mountains, and, you know, the challenges of deep duff and big trees. And, you know, you go over on the east side and you got, you know, open range fires. And, uh, you know, so it's uh, very diverse, very dynamic. It's a great experience. Uh, it prepares you for other geographic areas. And then, you know, I would say the other thing that I think is probably maybe different uh, than your time in region four you know the hotshot crews here are real cooperative like mm-hmm. we really have a we all really know each other well it's a small group uh you know we work really well together it's not comp- not a competitive environment i mean you know there's the normal sort of you know i don't know esprit de corps if you will but you know when we run into another crew on the on the fire ground you know what are you guys doing and that sounds good makes sense and you know we don't have to try and you know I'll think them. We just support them, you know, with what they got going on. If they got the intel, and you know, that's generally all the crews. Just you know, we get along well and we work together well. And uh, you know, and that's true about all the resources in the Northern Rockies. You know, whether you're talking about engine crews, helicopter crews, Type Two A crews, you know, it, it's a fairly good environment as far as not being egotistical and competitive. You know, it's more cooperative. Yeah, and I think that adds to all sorts of things. Not only the coordination is easier safety then is heightened because everybody's on the same page and i'm not saying it's not that way other places but sure i was in region four for a while and i'll be the first one to say that we're very competitive it was very very yeah. competitive i i have a long-standing theory it's because we're de- we were desert rats and we just rotted right. we rotted in the sun under a juniper <laughs> for months on end and we came we became very bitter and we just we didn't we just didn't want to be friends with anybody is what it came down to and we became very protective of of what we had because these desert fires would go out so quick, you know, but I'm not saying it it wasn't safe or we didn't coordinate well because we did, we got a lot of good work done. And, and at the end of the day, crew members would hang out out, outside of work, but you know, it's just, it's, it's different some places. Sure. Well, esprit de corps is important. I mean, you know, you certainly got to, you know, kind of give that a, we're, you know, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have a spirit of core within your organization for mm-hmm. sure. You know, I, I mean, when I moved to the Southwest, I was uh, blown away by how, you know, competitive and aggressive it seemed. And, and really it was just a reflection of the fire uh, regime down there, you know, in the, in the basin, you're talking about fast moving fires. And if you're, if you're uh, reacting to things then you're too late and, you know, so yeah. you gotta be proactive and you gotta kind of be aggressive to be successful. And, you know, that that's true in some of the Northern Rockies areas and other places, there's time to really look at it and, you know, go, okay, listen, you know, this is a huge timber fire that's going to be here for a while. And we just got to, you know, find a good anchor point and, you know, get after it. You know, it's not, it's not going to go out anytime soon. Yeah. And, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of how I look at it is on those desert fires or the Southwest fasting, moving fire, faster moving fires, it's it's more important and also hard to know when the right time is to take a tactical pause. And in these larger timber fires, sometimes it's harder to be patient. And and uh, you know the the cause and effects of all that obviously can be seen yeah. from fires all over. But it's it's yeah, just different yeah. places. Totally, you know, timber fires are kind of can kind of lull you to sleep. You know, they're just kind of bubbling around over there and you're watching them and they're doing thing. And then one second they just stand up and get in the trees and it's, you know, this huge fire with huge intensity where, you know, a desert fire is either on or off. hundred percent. So, 
you know, so, uh, you know, just, it, it, it leads a little bit to some different, different cultures and stuff like that. Neither of them are better or worse, but you know, the, you know, the Northern Rockies is a great place. One thing I appreciated coming from the Tano to the Northern Rockies was that, uh, there's shade. <laughs> yeah there is shade there is shade you know and we we deal with water handling systems and you know all kinds of things but you know a good hotshot crew ought to be able to adapt to any and be familiar with any fuel type or any uh fire regime out there you know it, that's kind of the the intent of being a national shared resources you know it's not to say that you go to somebody else barrio and just go i know everything but you know you ought to be you know proficient fighting fire in all fuel types yeah so, so 17 years in, uh, this year is, mm-hmm. have you expanded outside? I know you have, but maybe you can talk about it. Expanded outside just being a superintendent. Have you, what are some of the teams you're a part of? And it, ha, have you found that to be, you know, a valuable, a valuable asset and a valuable learning experience? Um, you know, expanding your horizons into those other, those other realms. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, uh, I have been rostering with, uh, Northern Rockies team six the last all three or four years. Uh, I, I'm not this year, uh, cause of some other things going on that I'm, uh, new challenges that I'm taking on, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, that's been really good. You know, a lot of it is just to be better at, uh, at my job, you know, to be able to look at a situation and, and kind of understand what the next level, the IMT level is dealing with, you know, what the agency administrator might be dealing with. Uh, you know, and, and their expectations there and things that maybe, you know, tactically to the ground level firefighter that don't necessarily make sense. You know, there's usually a reason for that. And so kind of kind of go figure out what that reason is, you know, and, and step up into those, you know, incident management team leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's been really good for me and for the crew, you know, for me to be able to, you know, look at a situation and, and kind of recognize, you know, how to deliver a solution that is going to meet the needs of the agency administrator who we ultimately work for. Um, you know, so understanding some of that language and, and what those people are dealing with, you know, there's all kinds of different uh, risk out there, you know, that we all take, you know, obviously the guy falling a tree is taking a very acute risk of standing under a fire weakened tree. And, you know, the agency administrator that's, you know, uh, got a fire on their landscape is taking on some real political risk and some other uh, wow. risks. And it, it all has value and merit to it. And, you know, so being able to understand that risk transfer uh, is, you know, something that's helped me try to be a better superintendent and why I kind of got after that. Uh, so, you know, that uh, I'll do some SISM lead work, you know, I go out and respond to these critical incident uh, uh, stuff around the country and uh, try to help people, you know, get through and, and recognize that they're, you know, not going crazy, that they're having a normal reaction to an abnormal thing that they've been through a stress reaction. And, you know, so doing some of that, it's been, you know, very rewarding in a lot of ways, you know, just personally, uh, you know, being able to help people out get back on the horse, if you will. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then of course I'm, you know, I'm currently just took over the region one chair uh, for the group here, uh, from Sean, and, you know, just kind of helping out nationally with anything that I, any tasks that I'm given and attending those meetings and giving a voice, you know, to the Northern Rockies crews at the national level, just, you know, making sure that we're being represented. And on yeah, that, on, on the note of like SISMs and, and the mental health aspects of, of what it's like to experience, you know, 
long-term effects of fighting fire and the things that come sure. around that. Have you found that the the culture over the years has become more accepting of that kind of conversation and understanding of, of, of that aspect of it all, that this is a thing and, and we're willing to accept and work with this and, uh, and, you know, are you going to continue doing this? And also I know that the crew had a tragedy a few years back and I was wondering if you could talk about how that was handled and, and the mental health aspects of, of how the crew took that. Sure. Well, I'll start out with the first question. I think that the agency and the fire service as a whole has come a really long ways in a positive way towards recognizing that uh, we're all human and that we have, uh, you know, uh, human needs and it's not just shove it down and toughen it up and get back to work, you know, and I'd say, uh, you know, as a culture, you know, as humans, you know, as a bigger culture that's become more, you know, we've gotten we've made a lot of progress on the stigma of mental health and making it, you know, uh, normalizing the fact that we all have, have, you know, PTSD and we all have, you know, depression, signs of depression and, you know, just different, different things that are going on and, and, and really giving voice to that and, and giving, um, you know, credibility to it and understanding for it for people, I think is really important. Um, you know, managing some of the, expectations of folks you know as far as the work life stuff is concerned you know really being able to recognize that hey you know i'm not okay and I, and, yeah. I, and that's okay and that's okay yeah you know it's, it's okay that i'm not okay and uh you know i need to step back or i need to keep going different people need different things you know as they go through stressful situations and uh you know the fire service the agency the forest service as a whole has done a really good job with you know uh, psychological first aid, SISM, uh, you know, some of the trainings that are going on out there, you know, leadership trainings and, and things like that, as well as, you know, uh, bias training and all the things that we get, you know, they're really come a long ways uh, towards being more accepting of the individuals within our group. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really positive. Uh, you know, Sarah's tragedy was just that, a tragedy. Uh, you know, certainly had a huge impact on the crew. Uh, of course, everybody responds to these things differently. Um, you know, and then we had the whole the whole gamut, you know, from very acute grief uh, to just sort of ambivalence, if you will. You know, it's like, well, I, you know, these things happen, you know, and, you know, kind of all over the place. And, you know, people going, well, should I be more sad about this? And why am I not more sad about this? Am I okay? Cause I'm not more sad about this. Uh-huh. It's like, yes, you're okay. It's okay. You don't have to be, you know, everybody's going to respond in it differently. And so when Sarah passed, you know, we took, uh, you know, we took as much time as the crew needed, you know, we basically went on available and just said, you know, we'll be available when we're available again, you know, when, when people, decide that they want to you know get back to work and you know some people were like hey let's go back to work tomorrow and some people you know took months to get back to work and and we just gave gave everybody the space they needed we did participate in a system uh, which i think was helpful for most folks you know as as they are usually you know there's about 80 percent of people they're like oh cool i didn't know everybody else was feeling that way all right I'm, i'm ready to go back to work and you know a couple people have a little bit more serious reaction to it and i think that you know, some people had uh, delayed reactions to it, which is all just normal, you know, or the season got over and they got uh, done and they're kind of like, oh, man, that was really a bummer. Um, you know, Sarah was a, a great human being. And, 
you know, we, we miss her every day all the time. We think about her a lot, um, you know, and uh, our agency, our regional forester was super supportive and allowed us to take the trucks and go down uh, and celebrate her life with her family, which really meant a lot to the crew, you know, and the family that we were able to go down there and do that in an official capacity. Um, you know, so, you know, people die and that's an unfortunate reality of things. And, yeah. you know, we, we have to honor that and, you know, feel those feelings and, and, um, have those reactions and, you know, and we, we did, and we got back on the horse and did our best. And, you know, uh, I think we're stronger for it. You know, I think a lot of people realize that how, uh, you know, fragile life is and how quickly it can go away and, you know, kind of maybe took a little more, uh, mindful uh, approach to how they're living their life, including some people who said, Hey, you know, I'd be in gone on the road all this time away from my friends and family. Is not for me? I want to, I don't want to, like, if I could die tomorrow, I don't want to be, you know, I want to be with my people and do the things I want to do. And, you yeah. know, so we, lost, we certainly lost some people from that and that's fine. And, uh, you know, some other people, uh, struggled really hard her really good friend, Kat, uh, you know, really had a hard time with it. They were super tight. And they were the two rookies on the crew at the time. And, um, you know, and she, it took her a while, but she came back even stronger. And uh, it has really been awesome to watch her develop. She's been on the crew since then. And this year she's going to West Yellowstone to jump. And she just, uh, you know, really, it really grew a lot from that. And uh, it's, it's pretty cool to watch. So, you know, from, from tragedy always comes, you know, good things. A hundred percent. And especially if that support is there and people are allowed to just feel what they're feeling and, and, and are told, Hey, we'll support you through whatever it is you're feeling. And like you said, it's different for everybody. Some people will, will simply just be like, Hey, this is, this is just kind of the way the world works. And, and yes, it's sad, but I'm, I'm ready to go back to work. And, and, yeah. and like you said, other people, they're just people grieve differently. It's just the way it That's is. Right. And as long as the supports there and the systems are in place to, to support that grief and, and help people move through it, I think it's positive all around. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, our agency has a great support network. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the resources are out there for folks who are having a hard time and uh, they've done a really good job of providing those resources. And I think people don't necessarily always understand or know how much, how uh, available those things are. But, you know, I always, uh, whether I'm dealing with SISM or just, you know, talking to the crew, I always, you know, put a plug in for those, you know, those services that are available to them. Mm-hmm. Well, Hey, I got two more for you. If you got the time. All right. um, sure. Where do you see the fire world in 10 years? Are you, are you seeing or predicting massive changes when it comes to how we fight fire, uh, the technology we use, um, that sort of thing. And, uh, after that, I'll ask you about if you, if you have any plans, uh, when you're all done. Sure. So, you know, I mean, fire comes down to three things, fuels, weather, and topography, and the topography is not changing. Um, you know, certainly the conditions of the fuels has been changing. Um, and the weather has been changing, you know, as, as indicated by the number of days that we're out and the length of the fire seasons that we're dealing with now, you know, so, uh, I, I don't have any reason to believe that that's going to change. I think moving forward, we're going to, you know, unless something drastic happens, uh, you know, unforecastable, you know, I think that we're going to see, uh, longer and more severe fire seasons, uh, 
you know, we're doing the agency and the fire service, the land management agencies as a whole is doing a really good job of trying to get ahead of the fuels uh, situation, you know, or out there aggressively treating the fuels uh, every day, uh, building up the fuels organizations and the capacity of the fuels organization. So, you know, I think that is going to be what it takes a long time to do. You know, I think in 10 years, you know, we'll see the fruits of the labor that's going on right now Mm -hmm. uh, from that. And hopefully that makes the job, you know, protecting values at risk uh, less risky and hard. Um, You know, as far as uh, technology, you know, the UAV program is really coming on uh, to be getting to be a really uh, good tool that we're uh, starting to see more commonly on fires. you know, whether we're talking about IR flights and, you know, holding operations or, you know, prescribed fire uh, implementation, you know, or veg management or stream management, you know, I think that no matter what you, what part of the land management um, puzzle that you uh, work under or look at, you know, the the drone UAV program is going to be a, a, an added benefit. So, you know, I think that's coming along and we're getting more and more familiar with, you know, I mean, geez, I, 10 years ago, you know, we were stealing the maps off the briefing tent to get a map, you know, and now everybody on the cruise got a map on their phone, you know, you know, and, uh, so that's, you know, it's great progress. I mean, there's been a lot of really good progress in those ways. And, uh, you know, it's kind of easy when you're old, like I am to sort of get wrapped up in sort of the acute stuff, the frustrations of things going on Uh in, you know, right in front of your face. But when I back up and I look at where, where we are, in the 30 years and how much progress we've made from, you know, everything from the tools and technologies to the way that we treat our people, uh, you know, to the support services that we have, just the cultural changes, uh, the progress we're making out there on the ground, you know, all those things, when you look at it from a, a, a broader picture, you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's enlightening. It's helpful. It's, you know, you really go, okay, yeah, we're all, we are make, we've made some great progress and we have, you know, ways to go but we're making progress and we're going to get there you know and so a lot of good people working on you know making things better for folks yeah and uh thinking back stealing maps was a thing and it's crazy that 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 it was a thing but it was it was like yo did you did you snag a map can you go up there and just snag that map real quick right I'll distract the division while you look the map off the briefing <laughs> yeah. board. You know? Exactly. Hey, where'd my map go? Uh, oh, but yeah, you're right. Sure. Now everybody's got a map and they can zoom yeah. into a single tree and show you how far you walked and where, you know, this was and where that was. So, yeah. Like, like all yeah. things, there's a learning curve and, yeah. you know, there is going to be some resistance, obviously, with folks who it's new to. Um, sure. But if you, I think if you do zoom out a little bit, there are there are a lot of positives in it all. And Absolutely. it's, there's, there, there is so much funding for it that it's just, it's, it's a program now. It's just, it's going through and it's, I think it's better to embrace it. I'm not saying everybody needs to go out and buy a drone and throw it in bin five and, uh, right. you know, launch it every time you pull up to a, an IA, but it's good to know how this stuff works. It's good to know, you know, that it's available to you. And, uh, you know, over the next five, 10 years, of course, we'll see how it all evolves. But, uh, I think if people are positive about these, these things happening and, and, and using them for the right reasons, um, there's a lot of benefit there. Oh yeah. I mean, it used to be five years ago, it was like, wow, a drone, really? That's weird. You mm-hmm. know? And, 
And now it's like, oh yeah, well, yeah, there goes the drone again. You know, oh, wow, let me see if I can link into it and look at the fire. And yep. you know, you just get used to using it. And yeah, they're they're great tools. And you know, there's a lot of people that have a passion for it and are and are uh, chasing that down. And you know, I don't know if you know, there's kind of you know, the, there's a lot of crews that are looking at the UAV program to get into it and things like that. And you know, I kind of am a little bit of a that there should be UAV got people that do UAV because it's a lot, it's complex, you know, it's being yeah. a pilot, it's, you know, there's a lot to it. And then there should be crews, you know, and, and if you need a UAV unit, you should be able to get one and order one. And, you know, maybe a few years from now, we'll have some sort of, you know, pocket, uh, you know, surveillance type drone that we can put up and look at a ridge or something like that. But, you know, it's just, uh, you know, with airspace management and the potential for, you know, risk that, that if, you know, every every resource had a little drone, we would never be able to fly helicopters. And so, you know, we kind of, they're doing a really good job of managing it. And I, I think that in time, you know, it'll become more commonplace. But, you know, the technology, I mean, God, the guys know where we're going before I get an order usually. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's amazing. Because when I first started, it was everybody's leaning through you know, the front of the buggy trying to listen to the radio for any sort of clue of where we're going. And within five years, six years that slowed down. And, you know, the rookie in the back is like, this is where we're going. And here's a GPS point. Let me send you a pin. It's like, Oh my gosh. Okay. This, this evolved quickly. Here's a topographic map. Here's the bench photo map. You know, here's the IAP, here's the comm plan, you know, before you even hardly get out of the ta- out of town, you know, you've got all that information, which is great. That's awesome stuff. Yeah, you sure, can you add, it can add to SA and and the mm-hmm. the probability of a of a successful mission, really. The mm-hmm. what I know to be true is you just don't get you can't get, you know, just focused on that. Like look out your window, step out of the boat, okay. look up at the mountain and see what you're yeah. dealing with. Yes. You know where you're going and what it looks like and what the plan is. But at the same time, like as everybody knows in the industry, things change very quickly and yeah. uh, just being on the ground can sometimes, and oftentimes provide you more information immediately than, than what you're staring at. Totally feeling the fire environment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, what happens when your blue dot doesn't show up anymore? You know where to go. Yeah. You lost. <laughs> ah, my blue dot. Yeah, I don't exactly. Know I'm. I'm not on the map yeah. anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, so yeah, I have no reason to think that we won't make, continue to make great progress, uh, as a organization, as a fire service, uh, not only culturally, but in the, uh, technological advances and, uh, life after fire. Yeah. You know, I, I don't, I, uh, I probably the reality of it is as as, as awesome as it would be to just say I'm going to drop the mic and uh, not be involved in it. You know, no matter how much I've kind of tried to keep my identity separate from my job, it, you know, it, it it is a part of your life and it becomes a part of your social life a little bit. You know, it's not that I keep in touch with everybody I know on the fire ground in the wintertime, but, you know, I, I see the same people, uh, on fires and it's like, Hey, how are you? And how are your kids? And, you know, so it kind of becomes a little bit of your social network. Yeah. Uh, so I think they'd go from, you know, 120 days a year at a high level to nothing would be, you know, I think that could be mentally challenging for mm-hmm. anybody. I'd like to think I could do it, but I, you know, honestly don't, don't, know that i want to hedge my bet on that so you know i'll probably stay involved in fire for uh, at least a while uh 
you know, on a, um, you know, at on some level uh, or another after I retire, mm-hmm. um, until I, you know, until I don't need need to anymore or don't feel like I want to anymore. Um, you know, it's uh, I enjoy it. I have a lot of friends and acquaintances out there that I enjoy running into and talking to. And uh, you know, like I said, I really it's really rewarding when you make a difference uh, out on the fire ground and uh, make someone's bad day better. So you know, those kind of things are sort of you know a part of who I am a little bit. And so I think, you know, not denying myself that uh, cold turkey, if you will. Yeah. You know, it's probably a smart thing to do. And so that's probably what I'll do. Seems to be, seems to be the, the, the answer and, and totally agree. You know, just look what happens. You know, it's getting less and less now with the off season as we roll towards full-time employees going forward. But um, just look what happens to, you know, seasonal employees in the off season, that 120 days off. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I, I, I'm fiending for fire. So right. yeah, the cold Turkey yeah, thing yeah. is, uh, is a tough one. Yeah. You're sick of it in October and again, start February, March starts rolling around. You're like, mm, boy, I, I don't know, I kind of get, smell some smoke, is that a campfire or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, an opportunity to go out and have some fun and make some money and make a difference, you yeah. know? Well, so, hey, Fred, see, see people. I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate the time. Cool. Um, Absolutely. When does the crew come on? Uh, in the uh, in the April. I okay. It's the twenty. I have to look at the calendar here. It's uh, April twenty fourth. Will be the beginning of the critical training. Okay, so you're getting closer. Yeah, yeah, it's coming. It comes fast. You know, we always kind of go through hiring season in the fall, and then you know, kind of a little bit of a lull where we can support the prescribed fire prep you know, programs around, you know, regionally and nationally. And then, uh, next thing you know, it's like, Oh no, you know, they're going to be here in a week. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get the stuff together. Yeah. But, make sure uh, everybody's yeah, back. I think everybody's, uh, you know, we're getting all of our permanent seasonal employees are coming back into pay status right now and, mm-hmm. you know, getting ready to get everything geared up and ready to go and go out to, you know, to the Southeast and support a little bit if they want to and knock the rust off and, get back out of here sweet well fred thank you thanks again for coming on appreciate your time and uh i'll stay in touch hopefully the 2023 fire season goes really really well all right cool well i hope so too i'll just hope uh, everybody comes home and that's it'll be it'll be a great success if everybody comes home at the end of the day 100 thanks man all right man take care 